Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we're getting right clown to it as we return to the world of Stephen King's It for Chapter 2 as well as hearing from the film's director Andy Muschietti and we're reeled in for Mark Jenkins' handmade British debut, Bait. I'm Sam Howlett, and to help me defeat evil, I've reunited with some of the biggest losers I know. <laughs> Kelly Powell. Rude. <laughs> and Stephen Ryder. Thank you. Uh, so we are going to be talking about It Chapter 2, as well as speaking to the writer and director, Andy Muschietti. But before that, we're going to talk about Bait. So this is Mark Jenkins' debut, It. Uh, we have two brothers, Martin Ward and Stephen Ward. Martin is a co-fisherman without a boat. And his brother Stephen has repurposed their father's vessel as a tourist tripper, driving a wedge between the brothers. With a childhood home now a getaway for London money, Martin is displaced to the estate above the picturesque harbour. As his struggle to restore the family to their traditional place creates increasing friction with tourists and locals alike, a tragedy at the heart of the family changes his world. Um, And I think for a lot of people that probably sounds like a very generic British sink you know, drama. Yeah, I was going to say. British sink or kitchen sink? British sink. British sink. It's a new genre, Kelly. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, British kitchen sink drama. <laughs> um, but the way this film's made is what really, I think, makes it something special. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because the synopsis for a film like this doesn't really do it justice in what it's trying to do. Um, the thing that I was most impressed about with uh, Bait is that you... Uh, are getting a lot of kind of BFI back projects at the moment that are coming out and having a lot of money put behind them, uh, and they're looking very slick. They're looking, you know, things like Lady Macbeth that came out a couple of years ago was like a slick looking film, mm. and it had a beautiful kind of um, stately, stately like mise en scène to mm. it and stuff, and and very easy to watch, very easy on the eye. This is. Um, it's still a beautiful film, but uh, it's it's done in such a specific way on like grainy. Mm. I think it's sixteen millimeter yeah, that yeah. they shot it on. Um, no sound recorded during the kind of production. Everything was added post, um, which gives it an incredible kind of unique quality. Uh, Quite people, dreamy. People have been saying dreamlike. Mm. Yeah, um, I I would go for that as well. And I think they definitely lean into the dreamlike aspect of it a lot by focusing on like weird textural moments in the film instead of the actual mm. plot itself. Um, but I think uh, I I have yet to see this on the big screen, but I feel like it would be quite an experience to see that kind of um, window into another world, mm-hmm. um, even though it is just kind of 
contemporary Cornwall. Yeah, it is just, it's like, uh, I think, you know, the juxtaposition of it being on this really old film stock that we're not used to seeing, but we're seeing modern day people and their lives. And then it's like those juxtapositions throughout the film, you know, the the, the, the newcomers, the new money, uh, the old school, small fisherman town, um, the way that the, the, the sound is done as well. It's, it's displacing in yeah. a way. It's like, it's just off center. If anyone that's seen like a, a Guy Madden film, I mm. think um, would be, would definitely draw parallels. I think it's the easiest parallel to make in the sense that you, like you just said, you're watching these very um, cont- contemporary and also like kind of um, violent in a way. Like there's, there's not a, a lot of violence in the film, but there's a very, like there's an aggression in the film. There's a harshness mm. to a harshness. the way it looks and the way everyone yeah. speaks to each other. Yeah. And, and well, it's interesting what you said. There's something really jarring about seeing a uh, a MacBook on hmm. black and white 16 mil, this sort yeah. of rickety looking thing that really it really jars you and it really knocks you back a bit and makes you question what you're watching. And it's weirdly anachronistic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I kind yeah, I really like that about it. You mm. don't get to see that kind of enough because it kind of does just eschew all manner of the the last kind of um, all all of the technological innovations that have happened in the last hundred years of filmmaking and um, says actually we're going to make a contemporary film about a very contemporary subject of gentrification mm. outside of London which is great to see because we're mm. seeing another story yep. um, and we're going to do it in a very kind of um, obtuse archaic style mm. um, and that alone is enough for me to be intrigued by a film but it's a good job that you know, they're actually telling a really interesting and at times really funny story about this kind of subject. Yeah, the humour's definitely there. There's there's the scene in the pub about you know halfway through or something, and there's a particular line about someone having a plum in their mouth. Mm, yeah, that really, really, yeah. really made me laugh. Yeah. And I didn't think this film would do that. No, no, no. It's it's definitely got. Uh, I'm not sure if the director himself is from Cornwall. He like, is because yeah. uh, his previous short film was about similar subject yeah. or at least about kind of the political kind of things going on in Cornwall. But he knows he knows this film that he's making. He knows the the best places to shoot in. Mm. He knows these characters. He's met these people before, and you really get a sense for that. It's it's certainly very personal. Yeah, it's very personal. I, w- I went I went to see the souvenir last night, and it was a film. Obviously, that's a film about uh, a director making a film about something they know mm. and very like targeted. This is what I know. This is what I'm making a film about. Yeah. And at times that made me a little bit like roll my eyes a little bit. But this, you sense that he's wants to make this movie he mm. wants to tell this story yeah, it's like a need a need to do it and um it, I, I think it's so great for the bfi to give a voice to this kind of director absolutely um, yeah. that's oh, coming important. from this yeah. kind of background you know and just doing experimental things with film like come on it's mm. it's back mm. back these people who still want to mess with the form of it you know yeah, yeah. and it's the kind of camera where you have to wind it i think and you can only film two minutes at a time Amazing. I love that. Yeah. And it's wonderful. And it has those moments. The one thing I did want to point out, just beautiful, like aesthetic moments are when a scene will change and the scene will go from like bright white and kind of fade Mm. in to the scene. And the, the images will come like in onto the screen they'll fade in and dissolve in yeah and i just think that was so nice to see because i haven't seen anything like that ever before i think in in this kind of film so um one reason to see it on in a cinema on the big screen is a moments like that that really just capture the essence of what the filmmaker's trying to do absolutely so he shot it directed it wrote it edited it did the sound did the score really impressive feature debut from mark jenkins and uh, that you can catch that in cinemas now uh, it's also part of our Curzon Voyager season. This is our um, selected programming strand. Uh, you can find out more on curzon.com slash Voyager. 
Um, so we do like sort of more obscure films, films that aren't getting a super wide release, and we do dis- uh, bigger discounts for members uh, for those films as well. So do check out that. Okay, so we are going from small town Cornwall to small town Maine, where the horrors of capitalism and gentrification are replaced by the horrors of a killer clown. <laughs> Stephen, tell us about It Chapter 2. So yeah, uh, It Chapter 1, huge hit. Um, biggest of, you know, horror film of all time in biggest, terms of box office. Yeah, which is just crazy to think about. 700 million. People forget how incredibly popular the book yeah. was, though. Um, but yeah, basically, it takes uh, the the book was just one big volume, um, and this takes kind of the uh, the second story within that volume um, about uh, the Losers Club, who in the first film we saw them vanquish kind of uh, the evil entity that takes uh, the form of Pennywise the Clown and many other forms in the first film, um, and preys on fear. They they vanquish it at the end of the first film, and this film begins uh, twenty seven years later. Pennywise has returned uh, as the as the kind of uh, the mythos goes, and um, the the Mike Hanlon, the librarian in the town, one of the original uh, members of the Losers Club, uh, he's the only one to have stayed behind. But he realizes that uh, Pennywise has returned, and he sets out to uh, reunite the Losers Club, uh, bring them back so they can fight Pennywise off one last time, and uh, try and kind of save their small town and uh, save their their own kind of psyches from mm. from all this trauma that's been happening. Um, and uh, if you've seen the first film, if you've seen it chapter one, then I think you kind of know what to expect going into it chapter two, uh, mm. just with a kind of entirely new cast. Right. So this film uh, sees Andy Muschietti returning. So he did it chapter one. He's back here to carry on what he started. Stephen, you spoke to him. I did. Uh, he He's a really lovely guy. Um, did get a sense that there's a there's a bit of Pennywise in him. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. He's he's a very tall man. Uh, they they held the interviews in the uh, experience in the. It was London weird when Waltz. he bit your arm off. Wasn't very it? strange. Yeah. <laughs> um, they they held the the interviews in yeah the London vaults where they're doing this kind of interactive it scare experience. They've got all these amazing kind of sets lined up and people jumping out at you. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a great place to do it because I think it really kind of captured the uh, the essence of the film in a way. Um, but yeah, we talked a lot about the humor in the film and uh his kind of making an american film even though he's an argentine filmmaker mm-hmm. uh but yeah here's uh, andy muschietti hi andy pleasure to meet you pleasure to um meet you. so kind of a strange junket uh, yeah. in a very strange place have you had a chance to do the experience oh yet? i did yeah, yeah? what was yeah. it like uh, phenomenal yeah yeah, was yeah it's, it... it's great because it's like it really got me you know yeah was it yeah. like being in your film or no it's scarier actually scarier? <laughs> well you know when you make a film you can't really scare yourself uh-huh. uh you know when the scare is coming and yeah. you know how where the the, the suspense is yeah. going this is different because That's... I didn't plan this. Someone else did. <laughs> <laughs> so I think everybody, especially audience-wise, kind of going into this, if they're buying a ticket for it, Chapter 2, they know it's going to kind of be a terrifying mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I wanted to do is kind of um, look at some of the other elements of the film, which I think were so brilliantly handled. And a big Thank part you. of that for me was, um, and one that surprised me, was the, the humour in the film, mm-hmm. the comedy element of it. And I just wanted to ask you why you kind of infused the film with so much humour <clears> and why you think horror and comedy or horror and humor work so well together? Well, there's like several reasons, you know. Uh, there's like a, probably the most like instinctive one is uh, I grew up watching movies in the 80s and one of my favorite movies, uh, horror movies, have a lot of humor in it. You know, Evil Dead, mm-hmm. uh, American Werewolf in London, uh, Fright Night, to mention a few of them. Uh, so it's, I'm kind of imprinted with that kind of storytelling. 
uh, like humor and horror go hand in hand for me. And so it was like a, like a more exciting uh, experience. Uh, humor also, you know, helped the audience connect emotionally with the characters, like faster. So it's some sort of like, you know, shortcut uh, to, to, to the audience's heart. Um, people feel better when there's a little humor in it. Uh, and they, they feel more engaged. And then uh, the combination of humor and horror also provides that, you know, that sense of uh, uh, unpredictability where, you know, as an audience, you never know what, if the, if the scene will end up in a, in a joke or in a chopped head, you know? Which I kind makes of feel like that's a very Pennywise thing to say, because in a way, he's directing a lot of these set pieces that these characters are, uh, are experiencing, and he's kind of mm -hmm. disarming the audience in the same way that you are before kind of scaring them at the end. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. imagine a movie that like, takes like the, uh, take the story seriously, you know, when you have a monster that is uh, like a, like a jokester, you know, I don't I don't see I don't see how that that, that would be possible. You yeah, know? No, I agree. And also, like life is is you know is made of, of all of these elements. Life is drama and pain, but it's also you know humor and you know uh, comic relief uh, to cope with with shitty uh, elements. <laughs> So, and Stephen King knows this very well. And so he includes everything in it. And that's how I, you know, sort of learned to tell stories by reading his books, so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the adaptations made from his films, like Creepshow, yeah. is one that I always go back to and forget how funny it is, but at the same time, like, completely disturbing in yeah. every ways. Um, so I've heard you talk a little bit as well about um, how you preferred kind of working on it chapter two, um, mm -hmm. because you had a chance to combine Mm -hmm. uh, the stories of the children and the adults in yeah. the same way that the book does, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why I prefer the second chapter as well, the kind of dueling mm -hmm. narratives. Could you talk a little bit about why you think that works so well in this film? Um, well, there was a clear intention on the first one to, to tell only the story of the kids because I thought it was like, you know, the purest way of telling the story without interferences. So it was the closest to, you know, to, to the, the best way to get the audience immer immersed in their story and connected emotionally with them. Uh, but I love so much the, the dialogue between the timelines in the, in the book that in the second one for me was like, no, it was no question that it I would go back to them. Uh, it works very well because I think that people that love the movie really connected with those characters mm -hmm. as, as children. Um, really felt for their, you know, their journeys when they were kids. Uh, and now they, they meet these characters like 27 years later and they need, basically, they, we, they see what they are now because these characters, are, that car these characters are reintroduced in the story, but they need to make the connection of, how, of, of what happened. Why, you know, why is it that these uh, characters uh, wanted up being what they are, you know? And it's, it's all because, like, the story itself implies that there was something that happened back in that summer that, uh, that cemented their way uh, for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. I, re I really enjoyed the fact that you kind of play with the idea of... Um, when you're young, your fears are very specific and mm -hmm. very targeted. And as you get older, they become a little bit, uh, you know, you turn into an adult, they become more complex oh, yeah. and a little bit more deeply rooted. Was that mm -hmm. something you had in mind going into the, 
to the oh, second. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. The first movie has like a little bit more of a naive look because it's it's like uh, you know it's, it's sort of narrated from the point of view of children, uh, and they're you know their their scares are about uh, yeah the woman in the painting who's scary that comes back to life, or the leper you know that is like full of infection. Second movie, even though it has the same tone, uh, lives in the same world as the first one, has like deeper themes, and and it's really you know it's it's about fears that we feel as adults, and they're de uh, um, uh, definitely more layered and, and and profound. So the look at these uh, these fears is uh, you know more like through the eyes of. Of, of, of a more mature lens. Yeah, no, for sure. I, di I did feel that this was a mature film, mm -hmm. as well as the way it looked. The production design was just mm -hmm. incredible in this film. Thank but you. as an Argentine, do you yeah. find it difficult to kind of recreate Americana in this way? Or is this something that you learn from like the people around you or from watching films, TV? Not really. I grew up in Argentina, but uh, I grew up watching all kinds of movies and a big amount of American movies. So uh, the Americana, Aesthetics are are very much imprinted, uh, you know, and uh, so when it came to recreate uh, Derry, uh, you know, of course I, I did some research and I went to Bangor, the real the oh, real wow. Derry, Bangor in Maine, uh, and of course you're working with people that are, you know, our production designer Paul Osterberry, who is a who is an um, incredibly talented uh, production designer. Uh, came in with all his knowledge and research. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult, you know. That's really good to hear because it's worked out really well. Thank you very um, much. One of the last things I kind of wanted to ask you was, I absolutely loved from the very beginning of the film, we get a lot of references to endings mm -hmm. and conclusions, especially <laughs> through kind of Bill. Um, and kind of ending a story is something that Stephen King's been criticized for his whole mm -hmm. career. Um, and you obviously highlighted this. Could I ask why you did that and where endings kind of fit into the mythos of like it? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's a great thing to, like uh, in the case of Bill Dembro, who is a bit of an alter ego of, uh, of Stephen King. Uh, and, uh, you know, Bill's journey is about guilt and not, not finding a conclusion to, to, to his traumatic journey, which is obviously not being able to solve, to resolve the fact that uh, he killed his own brother. So it's a guilt-like journey. And that's why he's struggling with endings, because he does, doesn't want to, like ending that, that scene, that, that, that journey for him would be recognizing what he did. And he's been like, sort of like, you know, suppressing it. Um, I have a, a personal experience with bad endings, which is uh, my movie Mama, which a lot of people didn't like the ending. <laughs> and it's not, I don't think it's a bad ending at all, but many people like, you know, accuse me of like shit, uh, like having like a, you know, disappointing ending. What can you do about it? Well, an ending for a horror film is a very difficult thing to do because you either end it and everyone goes home happy and nobody's scared, or yeah. you kind of end it in a bad way and people are disappointed because it's not got a, yeah, or you're telling a story about a monster and, and, and the ending is about humanizing that monster and people are like, no, <laughs> why would you do that? Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, if you do want to find out what happens at the end of it, definitely go and see it. So uh, thank you for joining us, Andy. It's been an absolute thank, pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Andy Muschietti. Um, so I think the big thing going into It Chapter 2 is how does it compare to It Chapter 1, which, as we've said, 
is the biggest horror film of all time was this huge phenomenon, much bigger than anyone expected it to be. How does it compare to that for you guys? I um, I really liked it. I think um, it definitely picks up exactly sort of it's it, it throws you right back into mm -hmm. where you left off where with chapter one. Um, I think that the casting was excellent, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that adds to it. You know, you're like excited to see what the kids look like growing up and like where they are in their lives and and how they come back together, um, and that's sort of done within the first act of the film, and then they're back in the town, and then it it. it, it it starts from there and it doesn't stop really till the end. Yeah, it's um, my, my biggest gripe with the first film is that because I did read the book when I was younger, I haven't read it for a long time, but I really enjoyed chapter to chapter, the timelines changing. Because um, it alternates, yeah, right? Yeah, alternates. And my biggest gripe with the first film is that by focusing entirely on the kids, you lose a lot of um, what the what the book was trying to mm. do in kind of um, mirroring a child's fear against an adult's fear and how, you know, you cope with fear through kind of different ages. Mm. Um but I was so happy to see that this film doesn't just leave the kids behind. Mm. It does, I think, what Andy Muschietti always wanted to do. Mm. Uh, and, and it blends the storylines together. And for me, that means that this film is... It's very, very similar to the first one in a lot of ways. But I think that aspect of it kind of tips it over for me as being a better film. Mm. And it's interesting. I think that he's dealing with a lot of... Um, not in a very overt way, but he's dealing with a lot of uh, heavy subject matter in terms, you know, trauma, memory, fears, societal fears, like repression, repression. Yeah. Uh, those things are big things. But he does it with such um, a light touch, mm -hmm. um, and he—that's all under, underneath, and you can read into that if you want to. But it's also just highly, highly entertaining. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's. Uh, I think you've you're probably a big fan of these of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Oh yeah, but I've never seen a film kind of capture that playfulness of yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger and that kind of I would hesitate to call as they went on the Nightmare on Elm Street films became more comedic uh, definitely but they always had that sense of playfulness in them and I've never seen a film kind of capture that so well since that series of, of maybe like things like The Evil Dead as well mm. um, but this is just so good at kind of having you terrified one minute and laughing the next and I think that's really great and to see in a mainstream horror film Definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, as he said, you you can. It does make you empathise with them more because you you share a joke and you're in on it almost, and mm -hmm. then then you're kind of you you're with them for for the rest of the film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, what do we think of this new cast then? So, we've got James McAvoy, Jessica Chastain, Bill Hader. How did these new additions work for you? I, I thought Hader was fantastic. Bill Hader right. is amazing. He's going to be film. getting so. Do you think support an actor? Maybe. Oh, I'd love it, to see it. I'd I like to see it. It's the kind of performance that sometimes sneaks in. Mm. 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 I mean, it depends, I guess, uh, the how the Oscars feel about mm. uh, a horror film. Yeah. Because this is a great performance, and it's so hard to get on the wavelength of this film and then give a great performance. Like, because it is such a, a, a mishmash of genres, mm. and you're never really sure whether to be scared or whether to be laughing. And I think Bill Hader just, like, is fully on that wavelength and he knows when to be kind of uh, an empathetic character and he knows when to be a funny character yeah. he even knows when to be really annoying yeah. like, he's really annoying in this film and kind of an ass like a lot yeah. and also and but he 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 does the character of Richie Tozio so much justice and I think he's a big character in the in the books mm. he's a really important part of the story and I think he he does so well to bring that character to life yeah. and Richie Tozio could be the worst character. He could be so annoying on screen, couldn't mm -hmm. he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, 
Yeah, in the books, he they I think they they call him a trash mouth in the film. Richie trash mouth. Richie trash mouth. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but um, yeah, in the books, he's really annoying, but yeah. also super super empathetic. And and I think you can clearly tell that Bill Hader's read the book and he cares about this character. Mm. Yeah, he's so so good in it. Um, pe- everyone's doing really good work though. I mean, just yeah. Chastain clearly cares about this kind of subject as well. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. They do something really interesting with Richie's character uh, in the film, um, and he's really actually a complex individual. Um, obviously they all are and they've all got trauma and they're all dealing with their, their trauma in different ways but it's uh, there's a there's an there's an um there's an interesting way that he plays with societal fears um andy you know current day yeah. fears um and how that manifests yeah it's there right from the start and i mean there's just just to make sure the audience are aware there are a lot of jump scares in this film as well yeah, yeah. um and so sometimes it can be quite difficult to kind of remember that you are uh there's actually a story here and like uh, <laughs> it's and not a, just a ghost train no yeah. it's not just not a, a theme but park it, ride. it is also that like yeah. um but there are a lot of jump scares in it i mean the biggest one for me was probably near the beginning of the film when peter bogdanovich like comes down on the crane <laughs> scared really scared I was the ter- crap out of me yeah. I, that's probably the loudest i screamed because <laughs> i saw that peter bogdanovich is in this film um, yeah yeah but uh, no there's some really great cameos in it though you get um for the art house crowd if you're a xavier dolan completist you got to see it you got to come see this movie um there's 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 the third cameo that i don't think we should spoil yes because it comes a little bit later and on. it's really it's a good one yeah it's really two, well done the two that i have spoiled are right at the start um but there's a really great cameo i mean we can't not tell people that peter bogdanovich is, <laughs> is in this i just love peter bogdanovich yeah. though he's always been like in and out of my life with the sopranos and like various <laughs> things and anyway, he comes out of nowhere on this crane and plays this really like um <laughs> Like acidic. He's playing. Is, they call him Peter. He is <laughs> playing himself. Oh, I, I really want to see the film, that, the horror film that Peter Bogdanovich is directing. Hundred percent. Yeah, Andy Muschietti could easily pull something like that. Off. <laughs> easy, easy. Um, so speaking of scares, then uh, Pennywise is back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Skarsgård is back. And I was thinking on the way here, has there been a horror character since Ghostface and Scream, where like it's that iconic, that recognisable horror villain that people dress up as on Halloween that is so instantly, that's the guy from that film. Because I can't think of one since Scream, really. No, I think they've... Yeah. they've. I mean, horror have moved away from that kind of thing. And I think Pennywise is the new horror monster at yeah. the moment. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's funny as well because he takes up so many forms. Yeah. Like uh, to scare these, to, to kind of mirror the fears of the... Of the of the various members of the Losers Club, but um, Pennywise, they they really kind of they they do an interesting thing here where they go they they they're honest in the way that they've adapted the books and they really go deep into the mythology of what this thing yeah, is. They do. Yeah, I was surprised at that. I thought that's the stuff you could maybe chop out mm-hmm. to be kinder to uh, the an audience time. that just yeah. wants to have fun. Yeah, you know yeah what I mean, yeah. but they they give you the mythology of this thing. Mm. They trust, obviously, they trust Andy Muschietti with telling yeah. the story. And he said, "Look, I want to put in a lot about who he is and who it is and where it came from." And uh, they don't shy away from that. It's probably like a big chunk of the film that we're looking at. Um, but we also get that strange scene with him, like with his makeup, oh, yeah. like clawing mm. away yeah. it. And that made me want to know more. And yeah. I think that's really cool that they've done that and that they they have exposed a lot of what this thing is. But they're also kind of like still dropping little hints in yeah. there as to like this bigger mythology, which is very Stephen King esque because yeah. obviously mm. his books all kind of linked together. Oh yeah. Um, and there's even been rumors of a of an it chapter three. Um, which I, you know, yeah. I'm on the fence about. But do you know who was originally going to play Pennywise? Mm-mm. 
Will Poulter. Will Poulter. Would have been yeah, great. Wow. Got it a creepy face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love Skarsgård in this, but like, Will Poulter's a really interesting actor. Be very different yeah. anyways, I think. He's a really tall man. Bill well. Skarsgård, yeah. he, yeah. No, both of them. Oh, Will really? Poulter too. Yeah. Really tall. Yeah, he is tall. Um, so it would have worked, I think, you know? And, but I think Bill Skarsgård's performance, I thought he was incredible in the first one, and he's just, scene after scene, he brings it home, and I, it's hard to tell what's uh, special effects and what's him, because mm. apparently... The eyes is all him. Like he can do that with yeah. his eyes. The yeah. eyes are amazing. Yeah, and yeah. the voice, yeah, that evil Scooby Doo kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> are you Georgie? A, yeah. Look, I I think I I I like I do, I really like the drum scares because that's obviously what half the fun of going to a horror film is about. But I think that he shines in the moments where the the scare is quieter and creepier. Mm. There's a that scene, um, there's one scene where you get to see the Pennywise that we were scared of in the first one. And that's Beneath great. Beneath the bleachers. Beneath the bleachers. That's an yeah. incredible That's moment. such a good scene, yeah. Brilliantly, brilliantly like, constructed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really, really well And that really mirrors the opening of the first film. Because I remember seeing the first film and the first one opens with a demonic clown biting the arm off a very small child. And that's such a clear message of intent well, of what the, these yeah, films are. This the is the Spielberg like, Jaws trick, isn't it? Yeah, mm. this is like, you are not, no one is safe in this film if you kill a kid. Mm-hmm. And the way they kill that kid in the first film was really, really horrible. Mm-hmm. Like, I was proper like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening in this mainstream. Well, look, it looks like it could be a PG-13 horror film. Obviously it isn't, but you know what I mean? It's, it's such a shocking moment for this kind of film and this film carries that kind of mentality on you know yeah. it doesn't hold anything back mm. Mm. no i completely agree and i think that that is one of the reasons why like you were saying he's become such an iconic mm. monster is because he is um kind of a ruthless like um genuinely evil because he doesn't of, have feeling no, like he's got yeah. no he's not human <laughs> well we the, the end of this film kind of puts that into question which i think is really interesting that's, yeah true to spoil anything but like that's yeah. kind of where this film head is headed yeah. mm. is that like we do question like what evil is and why it does the things it does mm. and you know how do we suppress it yeah um and uh you know i think that's really really fascinating i work with like i work in a lot of um with a lot of younger audiences now in the job that i do and they love pennywise mm. they think mm. he's so funny mm. and like so scary at the same time so they've really latched onto something here and it doesn't surprise me that this talk of in it chapter three he's the new freddy yeah he is he is the new freddy he's got he's, he's got freddy lines Krueger. he's got yeah. he's got the cool the makeup you can easily dress up as him on halloween it surprises me though because the tim curry original it was was for me, I mean, I I think Pennywise is great, but not I'm not so sold on the look of the clown. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that clowns are scary anyway. And then when you give them like giant teeth and like and claws and claws and eyes, like it's still scary. Yeah, 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 but it's not scary in the same way. Like if a clown was stood outside this recording studio, just looking in now, that would be scary regardless <laughs> of what they look like. Their, the claws and the other stuff. Yeah, part of like that fear comes from like it just being there. Yeah, and it yeah, shouldn't yeah. be there. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But but that being said, like I think that Skarsgård does still manage to pull out a performance, which yeah. is hard under all that makeup. It is. So, it is. Yeah, massive props to him. What were the kind of Pennywise it iterations that uh, stood out for you in this film? Because I know my absolute favorite, <laughs> Spiderhead. Spiderhead. I love Spiderhead. I mean, it's a uh, it's the thing, obviously. <laughs> but it's, they even say the line. Yeah, they? yeah. it's it was it. <laughs> It really surprised me that there was a spider head in this film, and <laughs> who, whose head it is is really interesting for yeah. the whole for that whole group as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what the spider head does 
Mm-hmm. I just loved Spiderhead. I thought that was very cool. Like, it's such an inventive film. It's really inventive. In that way, yeah. And the fortune cookie monsters. Fortune cookies oh, yeah, are great. They were horrible. Great, the, yeah. like, the baby wasp thing. The thing like dragging itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. That's yeah. really, really horrible. Just really horrible. <laughs> really horrible stuff. Um, me and Kelly were talking uh, post uh, film about the, the the jump scare that got me the most. I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but there's a there's a giant statue. Oh God, that uh, got me. Paul that, Bunyan. That really got um, me. Yeah, that uh, it's just terrifying. <laughs> like I don't know how you make. It's that thing about how can we take something normal yeah. and make it scary, and that's kind of a lot of what the theme is about. How can we take this inanimate? Mm object or this kind of um, nothingness and suddenly make it into the most terrifying thing you've ever come across in your life. As someone that watches a lot of horror films, I'm such a sucker for a jump scare. Yeah, me too. Like, I really, yeah. They really get me really bad. It's because you can see them come in. Yeah. They play, play, you know, they're really playing with you in this film. Mm. Kelly, you liked The Old Lady, didn't you? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I like that scene a lot. Cause, yeah. Again, because it's a little bit more of a drawn out, creepy scene mm. that um, you get the, the the scare at the end. But it's mm. it's like a, it's, it's slow. It, it makes you sit in it for quite yeah, a long time. I really enjoyed that, that. scene. I think that's yeah. one of the standout scenes. Mm. And also, if anyone's seen um, Andy Muschietti's short film Mama, which he eventually expanded into his first feature, the way he shoots the ghost monster in that short film. The way it sort of twitches and turns mm-hmm. is very similar to the what the old lady does in this scene yeah. in the background. Yeah. And it's a really inventive scare. I love background stuff. Like yeah. That. yeah. I yeah. love when you can see when 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 you're um aware of something happening in the background yeah. of a scene and the main character isn't. Yeah. That puts like the tension. Yeah. This, yeah. It, it heightens the tension so much. And when Muschietti gets it right in this film, like it really sings. Like it yeah. really, really sings. The enormous book is here. They've pushed the second half of that book down into three hours and they've changed the time setting, haven't they? So the book has the kids in the 50s and the adults in the 80s, obviously, when the book was written. We've now got the kids in the 80s and the adults in the 2000s. What does that time change do for the film, do you think, and for the story? Well, I think it's interesting because I think the 80s is very in right now. It is. It's it obviously is. very well, this, in, you know. The first film came out around the time of uh, Stranger, Stranger Things season Things. two when that was enormous. I think yeah. it played a big part exactly. in it. Exactly. It's it's just it's it's just the, the, the new thing. Like glows very much yeah. in, in that sort of realm as well. Mm. Um so I think firstly it's popular. Uh and secondly, it's interesting what it do, what it do, what it says about the time period of a, like American politics. Yeah. 
when Stephen King wrote the book, he wanted to write about kind of um, that post-war feeling of mm-hmm. bliss, of American bliss, and everything was okay, and nobody was worried. But the reality of the situation was there was all this awful stuff happening underneath the surface that we weren't aware of. Um, and eventually, you know, the 80s come along, which is where the second part of the book is set, and all of all those fears and all those insecurities have come to the surface. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think you're right, Kelly. I think this film is doing the same thing, but with contemporary times. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is the first scene is a is a big example of that. Obviously. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, it's uh, what what the 50s and 60s were to the people in the 80s. You know, this American dream. That's sort of playing on what Trump is hearkening back to, you know, make America great again. Um, you know, let's go back to Reaganite America. <laughs> yeah, no, this is it. This uh, is exactly so it's it. interesting yeah. what he's doing uh, and and what kind of comment he's making mm-hmm. uh, on current day mm. America, Trump's America and the fears underlining that and how how the current administration yeah. preys on those fears. Yeah, and absolutely. the opening scene of this we've mentioned, but I think that's really interesting positioning of the film where that Derry, the small town, the fictional town from Derry is one of these American towns that has been taken over by this sort of mentality. Mm-hmm. And it's it's now an even dang- more dangerous place. Yeah. Rather than, you know, it's not just monsters here. There are other things happening as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a really unsettling way to start this film. Yeah. But this is why Stephen King loves setting uh, his his films in these places mm. because they they... Usually he sent in his books he centers the action on a very specific place as if it's a place of evil. Yeah. Um, but all he's really doing is making a metaphor for the whole of America or even the yeah. whole of the world in that you can you can hide it behind like um all this tranquility as much as you want, but there's still always gonna be something happening under the surface. Hmm. Very David Lynch in a way, yeah. but doing it in a very different way. Um but but uh, uh, as far as the eighties stuff goes, like our producer Jake messaged me. Uh, apparently, apparently, the Duffer Brothers had something to do with the original script for this film. Well, they were in the running to make it Chapter One before okay. they did Stranger Things, mm-hmm. and their approach was set in the eighties. So and, they basically did it anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they were t- they didn't get the they didn't get the job because mm-hmm. it went to Carrie Fukunawa. Ah, of course. And by that point, and they'd by that already point, gone. they'd made Stranger Things, yeah. and then they gave it to Andy Muschietti. Mm-hmm. And I guess the the influence of the Stranger Things creators has kind of lingered in this film. Yeah, definitely. And definitely. I mean, I think I think that's all for the best. I think that's fine, really. I think the first one is it has a kind of ambliny feel, mm-hmm. and I think that approach works for this film. Mm, and I agree. These characters looking back on that time, the way we're looking back on the eighties now, of a kind of rose tinted, like you say, with things like Stranger Things and Glow, we're looking back at the eighties as this like golden period of when everyone was, it was it was cool, it was fun, um, and I think that works for the fact that you've got characters now that have grown out of that and have to face facts that it wasn't like that for yeah. them at all. Yeah. Mm. All right, so that's It, it Chapter 2, uh, which you can see in cinemas now, uh, and also Bait. Uh, and if you have any thoughts on those two films, you can let us know. Uh, you can email podcast at curzon.com or you can tweet us at Curzon Cinemas. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review and subscribe. We're available on iTunes, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can turn your attention to Cousin Home Cinema where we are showing Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir and you can catch up with our interview with Joanna on last week's episode. And in events, Kelly. Yeah, so you guys can catch the Open City Dark Fest that's happening oh, uh, early September, which is now, <laughs> um, at Curzon Soho. Um, some really, really good films out there, so uh, book your tickets to it's go incredible. see some. It's an incredible festival. Yeah. Um, and then also we have some more souvenir uh, screenings. Uh, along with Bird's Eye View, Reclaim mm. the Frame, 
Um, that's happening at Oxford, Wimbledon and Canterbury uh, this weekend. So check it out if, you, if you're keen to go along for some additional content. Uh, and then also Fleabag, the live dates are sold out, but cinemas still have multiple uh, encores to book for. So get your tickets to go see Fleabag. Great. And you can all find that curzon.com slash events. Correct. Okay. And that is goodbye from Stephen. Pop, pop. <laughs> goodbye from Kelly. Bye, Kelly. <laughs> Bye. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> Hiya, Georgie. Pop, pop, Georgie. You like popcorn, Georgie? I do that a lot. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.